Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. On this episode, we'll examine two distinctly different views of the American economy. Is it on the road back to rising prosperity, a positive recovery, or is the economy facing an imminent downturn a year or so or even just months away from a deep recession fueled by soaring consumer and government debt and cash-strapped households? We'll hear from Dick Beauvais on Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's positive posture on the U.S. economy and from Matt Van Alstyne on the multitudes of tailwinds now facing the economy. We'll have more from Dick on the new proposed bank regulations and their potential disinflationary impact. We'll look at China and its vast ghost estates and its housing crisis. We'll pick up on comments by JP Morgan's Jamie Dimon outlining his view of world and domestic events from the global fiscal debt crisis and recession to China's latest challenges. Dick Beauvais is out with a new report on the US money supply. Where are interest rates headed from here? We look at that and more. I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group and Matt Van Alstyne, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And we'll be right back after this message. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, welcome for episode 87. We'll have a clearer view of where we're headed on interest rates By next week, we have the Fed meeting this week and overseas, the Bank of England meets on Thursday, Bank of Japan meets. Love to get your opinion, Stick and Matt, on where you see interest rates going, given that the CPI rose 3.7% in August from a year earlier. Now, that's a faster pace than July's 3.2%. Um, but core inflation, which takes out the food and energy prices, decelerated to a 4.3% annual rate in August, and that's slower than July's 4.7%. So inflation is slowing. Uh, Should we cheer all this news? Well, I I don't accept core inflation number. I look at the total inflation number because, you know, people are not going to stop driving their cars and stop eating. Uh, You know, they're going to continue to do both those things. So my guess is that, uh, you know, inflation is moving up a bit. Uh, oil prices this morning were $95 a barrel. That, that's that's a significant jump from where they were, let's say, six months ago. We're, we're in a situation where housing prices are going up again. Uh, rents are going up again. I, I don't see how we can say that inflation is uh, slowing down. I, I think it's, uh, main, let's say, maintaining itself at an unacceptable rate. And therefore, I think that uh, even though 
I'm con I'm convinced the way everybody else is that the Federal Reserve will take no action uh, tomorrow when it uh, takes a look at interest rates. Uh, I do think that uh, the argument that the Fed is going to drop rates four times next year, once a quarter, uh, may, may not hold true. I think that uh, we, we have got to see inflation come down more. But I think that there are a couple of factors not related to the Fed, which are going to cause inflation to come down. Number one, uh, I think that these new bank regulations, um, which would go into effect starting in January, uh, will will be, you know, extremely disinflationary. Uh, already, the Republicans in Congress have uh, sent a note to the, the bank regulators asking them to completely eliminate all of these regulations. Uh, there are a number of de de Democrats that are, are against these regulations. Uh, there, there's there's been quite a bit of uh, noise saying that these regulations should not go further. Uh, and as as we said, you know, in, in prior, you know, two prior podcasts, uh, we think that uh, these regulations will cause the banks to let, lend less money, which will have a, de a depressing effect on uh, the growth in the economy and a depressing, a depressing effect on inflation. So I, I don't see any loosening up occurring at the Fed level at the moment. Whether they're at the peak or not, I, I think is another question. I think we are at the peak uh, or pretty close to the peak, but it doesn't mean to say that they're going to come down fast, as fast as people hope. You know, uh, you know, the, the expectation is that within four or five months, interest rates will start to be cut. I, I don't see that happening at all. Well, we'll come back to the banks in a moment, Dick, because you have a report out also on Jamie Dimon or your insights, as it were, because Jamie spoke last week at an investor conference. Um, I was listening to Janet Yellen on um, Morning Joe this morning, and I, I was taken aback somewhat. She said the consumer is feeling much better. We've had a remarkable recovery, and she said that uh, while consumers are feeling better, they don't feel good about the economy. I just thought it was very disjointed what she was saying and perhaps even misleading because the um, conference board last month, as an example, said consumer confidence tumbled to 106.1 in August from a revised 114, 114 in July. And consumers are really feeling the pain on credit card debt. Balances are higher. Uh, interest rates of tw above 20%. 30-year fixed mortgage above 7%, um, prices at the grocery store, gas prices. So what do you make of all of that? Well, I mean, as, as I've been noting, Janet Yellen now has a different responsibility. Her responsibility is to get the president reelected, right? That's the first responsibility. And yeah. the second responsibility is to keep the government open. And in order to do both of those things, she has to take a very positive approach to where the economy is going. And in I guess the comments on CNBC yesterday, and I guess what you heard this morning on Morning uh, Joe, basically she's taking, she's doing what she's supposed to do. She's saying that the consumer is in great shape, the consumer is feeling fine, the consumer is going to spend more money, the consumer is going to drive the economy higher, everything is looking good, uh, and she's trying to, you know, give confidence to the listeners that they should go out and spend money and, and take, uh, you know, steps to, to assist the growth in the economy. Um, her second responsibility is supposedly in 10 days, the Congress has to take another vote 
as to whether to keep the uh and, and i don't understand i thought it was november but uh, you know i heard on on television this morning it's in 10 days you know and both the, the republicans under kevin mccarthy and i'm going to say the democrats under janet yellen at this point are laying out their cases you know janet yellen is basically saying you don't have to do anything you know we're going in the right direction uh you know mccarthy is saying you know we've got a lot that has to be done this these are the things that have to be cut from the budget this is what we've got to do about immigration uh and so the clash has been set up both sides have uh, indicated their positions and now you know uh, the rest of the people in the congress have to determine where they want to be and which side they're going to be on so generally speaking uh i think that uh, it, it's very difficult to believe anything that comes out of the mouths of anybody who is in washington because they they now have major political agendas they've got to get their candidate elected president in november of next year and that doesn't start by you know yelling and screaming in july and august you start yelling and screaming now which is what they're doing uh it's it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in the next 10 days you know how this vote is going to run uh to see whether they are going to shut down the government or not there is a real chance that they will when you when you say they're going to shut down the government it's not a proactive decision i mean I, I guess you can make an argument that the democrats and biden would be the beneficiaries of the non-proactive decision but it seems like there's a handful of republicans in the republican house republican-led house that are hell-bent on causing chaos and that seems to benefit the democrat party and you know sun Tzu always said you know don't get involved when your enemy is making a mistake <laughs> um, and that's what the democrats plan is to do is to let the republicans make this mistake but from our perspective the the hit to the economy could be you know catastrophic and we have a lot of tailwinds and then and then and then there's storm clouds on the horizon i mean look at the tailwinds we have you have the uaw strike which you know i, I it's been decades since we've had like a strike like this where where the the sides are really far apart and you listen to the 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 head of the uaw talk and you uh, you know, he talks about how they want a 40% pay raise to match the management's um, pay increases since their last deal. And you're like, huh, okay, that makes sense. I, I understand the logic. Management's made 40% since we signed a new deal. We should make 40%. But then if you do the math, if they give pay raises of 40%, and this we're talking about companies that are trying to transition under the, the government mandates to more EVs, mm. they do not have the price um you know, the cost advantages that Tesla has. Tesla is able to roll out EVs on a profitable basis. Ford, I'm sorry, not Ford, all of Detroit loses money when they sell EVs and they're subsidizing it through their gas-powered vehicles. And so it's a very intractable position. If if the UAW gets close to what they want, it'll just put more pressure on the car companies. Um, combine that with what's going on in, in the White House, or sorry, in Congress with the government shutdown. Um you know, last year, I don't know if anyone kind of remembers, but at this point in time last year, I was harping on about how the coming winter could be a game changer to Ukraine and to Europe because Europe doesn't have enough energy. And they had the warmest winter, I think, since modern records had ever been kept. And the energy crisis, you know, never came to be. But this year is totally different. And if you look at what MBS has been doing in Saudi Arabia, he's been doing cuts. 
um, you know, a lot of the the China hawks have been getting nervous because China has been hoarding oil this entire summer. They've been buying more oil and and filling up their reserves. Well, by the way, America has been draining our reserves and people, you know, China hawks have been saying, oh, they're getting ready to invade Taiwan. Well, what if it's something different? What if it's they know that this coming winter there's going to be more cuts to oil and they're just getting ready so that they have enough oil supplies to get through the winter. And this is a design to choke off the West. Like there's a lot of headwinds on this economy. And I, it's, it's unbelievable to me that the Fed's even considering raising rates because to me it seems to be that this is not a monetary inflation i know we talk about m3 a lot and i think dick and i disagree a bit on this but i think it's a supply chain inflate caused inflation and we need to get to a spot where we're no longer printing money to to fight this war in ukraine and we're actually worrying about our own house i feel like there's a lot of headwinds on the economy and the thing that scares me the most right now is it seems like the consensus among economists or at least public facing economists and popular ones is that we're going from a soft landing to no landing which is they kind of think there's no recession and you know one of farrell's um top 10 rules of investing on wall street is when everyone agrees something's going to happen that's when you know that something else will happen and right now it feels like everyone's kind of is shaking hands like hey we did it we're not going to have a recession and i'm with dick i I think i think the only difference i i have with him i think you're saying for a recession in the middle of 2024 is i think it's going to come q4 or q1 I hear you saying there, uh, Matt, um, repeating a theme that has come up constantly on episodes with Dick's research, debt, more debt and, and debt. Again, if we do have this soft landing or hard landing or crash, it's going to be severe because it's it's debt fueled. And that's one of the biggest headwinds we clearly face on top of a nation that's at strike um, and homeowners pinched uh, in the pocketbook when they go to the grocery store. It, it's it's very difficult to see where this is going to play out. And so do you think this could be the end of interest rates if things head suddenly in the wrong direction, if they head south? Well, yeah, if we, if we get into a recession, it's unlikely that the Fed is going to increase interest rates. I mean, I think the, uh, you know, the Fed is not going to sit there and say, you know, we're going to be so pedantic about, uh, you know, raising rates that uh, when nothing's going to change our mind. I think uh, that, uh, for example, if uh, what Matt said is correct, or we get it in uh, the fourth quarter of this year, or the first quarter of next year, the Fed will definitely back off. I, I don't have any question in my mind about that. Um, uh, it's just that, uh, you, you know, I, I, I rather not think about the Fed anymore. I'd rather think about what Matt was saying and, and, you know, where are we really going with this economy? And as I see it, uh, and, and you said this a moment ago, John, but I think that the consumer is getting stretched. I think, uh, you know, the debt load is now increased. The cost of that debt load is higher than it was before they even started growing that debt load. That has to be a, a factor in what they're thinking about in terms of how they're going to spend money. So I think Janet Yellen's view is is totally incorrect. I don't think the consumer feels good. I don't think the consumer is going to go out there and spend a lot more money. We're already seeing a change in the spending habits. In other words, uh, money, I think they now call it, are you spending the money on necessities or experience? Experience meaning you're going to take a trip, are you going to, you're going to go to the movies. And, and apparently the spending patterns are going back to necessities away from experience, all of which would suggest that the consumer is feeling the pressure and that we are headed for, you know, a difficulty on that side. And I, and I think the view that the economy has absorbed or, uh, or, 
already corrected for the increase in interest rates is just totally incorrect. I just don't believe that uh, the economy has yet got enough time of paying debt service costs, whether it's a corporation, the United States government, uh, or, or the consumer, to, to feel that uh, you know we don't care where interest rates are going to be. We do care, and we do care about the amount of debt, and both of them are too high and very hard to see how we're going to do really well in, in that situation. Are we isolated in any way from China's downturn? Should we be worried about it? We've talked about what could happen in the U.S. domestic economy, where the Fed may move on interest rates and the consumer being pinched. But we, we keep getting reports every day, the latest being that uh, China's economy faces even a bigger housing crisis, quoting here from the Wall Street Journal, two years after Evergrande's fall, distressed property giant country garden threatens to create worse problems its financial distress could create far bigger problems for the economy and policymakers than Evergrande's debt defaults did in 2021 okay so is that just a china situation if if china just really plunges further does it have ripple effects beyond china because it's it manufactures our goods at a cheaper cost than we can well, yeah, of course it does, because, no, and, and I guess uh, that other country, Countrywide or whatever his name is, I understand they missed the, de the debt payment this morning, which is, uh, you know, putting putting them in default. But we export a lot of goods to China. I mean, we import more than we export, but we still export a lot of goods to China. And if China's economy weakens dramatically, then, you know, we're going to export fewer goods. However, I'm not aware of any recession in this country that's been created because of a decline in exports. Uh, you know, I, I think they're all declined. The, the, the recessions are all driven by internal events in the U.S. economy. So while if China, you know, go, goes into deep, deep dive at the moment, um, you know, it, it'll hurt us, but it, it won't put us into a recession. I, I, I completely agree. I don't, I don't think China will impact. You know, this is not the situation of you know, when 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 China gets catches a flu, America gets a cold. I, I think it's more of does does it destabilize the region? Does it destabilize um, Xi internally? You know, the, the 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 story we've been told, at least in the West or what I've heard, is the Chinese populations are kind of controlled through this compromise, which is, hey, let us be in charge, and everyone will get rich. And if that starts changing where you have one party control and people are not getting rich, in fact, you know, their savings, which was, you know, plowed into, and it wasn't countrywide, Dick, it was a country garden, uh, sure. countrywide is the US one that went down in 2008, country garden, which is, I mean, some of these images of the of the towns that country garden has built are just spectacular. They look like these Manhattan sized lines and lines and lines of apartment buildings and what you're told is that these apartment buildings some of them are 30 and 40 stories tall and there's 10 or 15 of them in a row with the parking garages and all that is they built the shell but internally they have no you know parts to to complete the housing and you know the the, the average chinese person put two hundred thousand dollars down on an apartment which they believed would would be built and then they'd be able to flip it for three or four hundred thousand dollars and it was this this rolling you know, scheme that was kind of working for everyone. And now the companies don't have the money to finish the apartments. The apartments are worthless without um, being completed. And so the savings of the average citizens are going to be, you know, stuck in these, these ghost towns and yeah. they're not ever going to be able to get their money back. And, 
you know, so the feedback loop that I that 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 is explained to me is the citizenry gets restless and Xi becomes unstable, and maybe he has to do something external like invade Taiwan or launch a trade war or do a you know some sort of internal crackdown, and that it's destabilized into the world and destabilized into the region. Um, but that shouldn't necessarily impact us economically, except for the extent that you know we all do better when. Everyone is doing well, and and you know, a rising tide lifting all boats is actually lifting all boats. In the case of Country Garden, they were building a lot of houses in rural areas, and so um, coincidentally with that, a lot of the rural population is moving into the cities. So there's two things hitting up against each other. There's no buyers what, as well. That's one of the issues. What China was trying to do was to uh, create areas of economic growth uh, outside of the main population centers. They, they wanted to diffuse the movement of all these people to, you know, the, the, the Guangzhou, Beijing, what have you. And, and essentially, that's why they built these cities that can handle, you know, as many as 10 million people uh, in areas which are, are diverse from the, the, the center of uh, manufacturing activity in the country. So they, they had a viable strategy. The fact is that they never considered the, the, the fact that the people wouldn't have enough money to buy these apartments in these places, and these companies would not want to move their production to areas where the transportation lines were longer, where the supply lines were more expensive, etc. So now they have to deal with the fact that these shells are up there standing, and there's nobody in them. And the people who have invested in them are going to lose their money, and it's going to have an impact on the economy. Now, I remember a long, long time ago, I had, uh, you know, and I've mentioned this before, I had, you know, lunch with the CEO of Citigroup. And he was saying, you know, Dick, he said, there, there are 65,000 riots that occur in China every year. I said, how the hell do you know that? You know, he said, "Well, there's some organization that counts uh, when there's, a, you know, an, an announcement of three or more people that are demonstrating against the government, and that these people in China are demonstrating all the time against the government. Uh, and and the fact is, the only way you keep them cool and calm is to give them food, a place to live, and some recreation. And you know, China's reaching the point where they can't do that." And if they can't do that, then, you know, it's going to be 65,000, you know, individual groups of three people or more, you know, having, a, you know, a riots or what have you. I don't know. But but the fact of the matter is there will be a tremendous amount of discontent. And China is is in trouble, you know, outside the country also, because it put out this map in which it showed it controlled all of the, I think it's 200 uh, nautical miles from the, from the uh, shore uh, you know, and therefore they're, they're grabbing land from the Philippines, from Japan, from Vietnam, from Singapore, you know, from Malaysia, from, you know, Indonesia, uh, you know, from obviously Taiwan, from uh, Korea, and everyone from Russia, actually, also. Every one of these countries have objected. They sent their, their patrol boats. They got all, as, as Matt explained before, they're not big boats, they're small boats in their Navy, but they send them all over the South China Sea to enforce the fact that they own this land. So they've created this enormous amount of, of anger against the country among all their neighbors. And then, of course, because it's now time for other countries as far away as Latin America to pay their debts on the Belt and Road obligations, and they can't pay the debts. 
and therefore that's creating some some upset. In fact, uh, countries like Argentina are going to the IMF, asking the IMF to lend them money so they can pay the interest on the Chinese debt. You know, and I don't know how long the IMF is going to be, you know, willing to do anything of that nature. So China has got problems, maybe with its internal population. It's got problems on his its immediate borders. It's got problems with the uh, payments that uh, you know they're demanding from the Belt and Road situation. So uh, I'm happy it's happening because I'm an American and I believe <laughs> they're our enemy. Uh, but the point is, oh. it is happening. And it's not going to be good for China for a while. Maybe want to de-emphasize the word enemy. I mean, the Chinese are our friends also. We do business and commerce with them. We want a peaceful China and mutual cooperation. Um, the Wall Street Journal had a, a report out on Saturday, and this speaks to something you brought up many months ago. And I think Matt might have been skeptical of your assessment here, Dick. So maybe you need to take a bow here. China and Russia outrun U.S in race for hypersonic missiles subhead super fast weapons can evade most air defenses super yeah, well, hypersonic I, missiles yeah well i think you know that and quantum <laughs> computing are the two areas which are most frightening you know because uh, they basically have missiles that we can't stop that's obviously a, a huge problem and what makes these missiles even worse is that they can carry multiple uh, ballistic, multiple warheads, which means that you know they can send a missile toward, uh, we'll say, the east coast of the United States and hit Boston, New York, and um, you know Washington with the same missile because they can have these offshoots to the missile. How it works exactly, I don't know, but uh, basically that that's that's sort of being told. But the quantum computer thing is worse because apparently quantum computers come uh, from a totally different. Uh, standpoint in physics, and they can read, they're so fast, and they're so powerful, they can read, you know, the standard computer, all right? And the net effect is the United States and China are rushing to see who's going to get their quantum computing set first, but it, it's 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 another huge threat to, to where we stand. So yeah, I, I know the word enemy mm -hmm. is very harsh, but I believe there are enemies. Okay, <laughs> I therefore believe that we need to protect ourselves against them. But I also believe that you are correct that it is far better if we can find some, uh, you know, peaceful, uh, you know, method to continue to work together, to do trade with each other, to grow uh, our two countries together. I just don't think China is willing to do it. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, there, there's a difference between enemy and competitor, and and. You know, I, we, we can get lost in the semantics of it. I just think that, you know, going along the lines of, first off, the, the hypersonic missiles, I, I would kind of take dispute that I disagreed that, that you were right on that. The two issues I have with it is, I think it's entirely possible, if not probable, that we have the technology, we just haven't gotten caught using it, and, and it's better for us geopolitically to keep it a secret. Maybe that's just my bias, but it just seems like the type of thing that maybe would be happening when, you know, countries that we would consider behind us technologically have seemingly more advanced weaponry. Well, I just want to check the check your assumptions at the gate on that one. The second thing, though, on the, on the supercomputers, you know, it, it was kind of off the radar as Trump was leaving um, office, but he, he banned exports of certain... Um, chips to to china and then biden when he got in office you know expanded the ban and the whole idea was to prevent huawei from developing the the highest tech 5g phones and potentially going into 6g phones um because they don't have the chip manufacturing capacity 
And, you know, the, the new phones that just came out with, from Apple the other day, they have what are, what are sized as four nanometer chips. Like the, the smaller the number, the better, the more high powered the chip. And the belief and expectation was China was stuck somewhere around 15 or 20 nanometer chips. And so they would never be able to get there. And, you know, two weeks ago when Janet Yellen went over to um, China, as she was meeting with the, the 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 leaders over there, Huawei introduced a new phone called the Huawei Mate 60 Pro. Uh, maybe it's Mate, I don't know. And it is powered by a seven nanometer chip. And the the word on the street, uh, and the, according to the Wall Street Journal, is that the intelligence analysts that follow this are just stunned. They're floored. They're they're beyond shocked that China, on their own, developed a seven nanometer chip when we thought that they were stuck in the fifteen in the high teens in terms of size, and that the growth and progress from where they were to where they are today, they, you know, suggested that it could only be um, achieved through espionage and stealing American technology. But regardless of whether it was stolen or not, they do have the capacity to make their own chips, which again, goes along with what you're saying is if they can get down to, you know, four, four or three nanometer chips, that they would have the potential to power a quantum supercomputer. And that quantum supercomputers are basically can break into any of the old computers that we all rely on and use on. And so the only way you can defend against quantum computing is to have quantum computing yourself. My sanguine attitude towards the hypersonic missiles is, you know, what's their purpose? Okay. They can take out an aircraft carrier fleet before the aircraft carrier fleet knows. Okay. But that's the same as a submarine taking out our aircraft carrier fleet. It's the same as, um, you know, taking out Washington D.C. with a hypersonic missile is the same as taking out Washington D.C. with a nuclear missile. Like if you would, if you if that's where we are in terms of relationship, is we're blowing up each other's cities and blowing up each other's aircraft carriers. We're already well into a world war, or it's a sneak attack that leads to a world war, which leads to mutually assured destruction. And so there's a part of me that kind of thinks, so what? Like you can't, they can't use that not without knowing that the retaliation will be the end of civilization. And so it kind of, you know, it, it's like a doomsday machine that's like, okay, you have it, but I can't, you know, it's it's just hard to imagine a scenario where they would be comfortable using it because the retaliation would be so severe. I think you're right. It's all threat, 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 as opposed to yeah, going back to your uh, Sun Tzu, you know, it's it's all, you know, threat and, and posturing as opposed to the reality that they're going to use them, but they have them. Hopefully you're right that we have them and we're just not building them yet or they we're building them and we're not telling anybody about it but they have them and it is a threat and the way they're trying to um, moderate the threat is by saying we're going to use them on a limited basis in a place like ukraine uh and we'll see if, if they if they try to do something like that Speaking of China, you parsed Jamie Dimon's recent comments, Dick, to investors, and he has broad and sweeping and some very specific statements. He brings up the um, geopolitical situation, the domestic economy, and he brought up China. Uh, we could start at that and look at the other areas too. He went on a trip to China recently, Jamie Dimon runs one of the world's largest banks. And he said that a lot of folks in Asia, these are his words, think that America wants to, quote unquote, contain and maybe hurt China, which I don't think is true, according to Diamond. I'm quoting now from Jamie Diamond. 
But I think the American government has been quite clear that it isn't the goal. Their goal is to protect U.S. national security, American competitiveness, and hopefully they'll be done in a way that's fair and reasonable with our allies. So the Chinese people are worried about China. He was speaking extemporaneously, as they said, without notes, obviously, because he was all over the map. But it was really interesting. Um, He talks about uh, possible recession, the terrible global fiscal debt crisis. And then he talks about our fiscal spending. Then he lashes into regulators on banking regulation. He really hits at them, describes it as a total disaster, the banking regulation. So summing up, um, he got in a lot of important uh, pointers there, Dick. Well, that's that's what's kind of fascinating about when he uh, spoke in uh, New York last week, and that is he seemed to want to talk about these broad issues, but the uh, conference that he was speaking at, they wanted him to talk about how is J.P. Morgan Chase doing right now, how are they trading, how it's investment banking doing. So the questioner would ask him a question about, you know, A, and he would immediately diverge to B. But the reason why I uh, put out the report that I did, you know, quoting him, uh, you know, meaningfully, is because he's saying what we're saying. <laughs> that's what that's what struck me about. Well, about I think he must listen to Audion Capital Conversations podcast. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> doubt it. But the, point, the point is that uh, he, his, however, he came to his theories and we came to our theories they're the same in other words he was very very concerned about the fact that uh, the world has changed he called it a tectonic change uh, i think that's uh, you know like a a volcano or something of that nature change that the uh, world is never going to go back to the way it was before and that uh, it's due to the fact that the separation has now occurred between the major economies of the world and that we, we have to prepare for that. In terms of his position in China, a decade, maybe two decades ago, you know, China was supposed to be a major opportunity area for J.P. Morgan Chase, and by the way, a whole bunch of other banks. But the fact of the matter is, you know, after you know they taught the Chinese how to do all the things necessary to raise capital in the world economy, they were pushed out. Uh, and I think the the latest thing that J.P. Morgan Chase has done in China is move back to, uh, you know, Hong Kong. Uh, and Morgan Stanley is kind of moving out of the area. Citigroup, you know, indicated, you know, that they're leaving the area. W- what he's saying and what we've said are, are the same. You, you know, the, the world is changed in a fashion that is so dramatic that we're not going to go back to what it was after 1991, when the Soviet Union was split apart. And that's going to mean that the price of goods are going to be more. It, it's going to mean that the flow of funds are going to be more constrained. It's going to be mean that, you know, each country is going to look to its own resources to a greater degree in the past. And that's that's his theory. That's my theory. And I think that's that's what's happening. Now, what he's also saying is we can't let that happen. We've got to think about ways to become friendlier, to cooperate, to work together in a positive fashion, because, you know, it's it's not the direction we're going in is not good and it's not right. I wrote him a note, uh, you know, asking him to speak with us more directly, uh, which he has not responded to. But the point is that um, he has the same view. Uh, I mean, Matt would love his view on, on United States debt. You know, he he uh, he believes that it's out of control, that it has to be controlled 
that you we cannot have a situation where the debt continues to grow at an uncontrolled basis, uh, that it's, it's going to have a, a very negative impact on the economy. He said that people think that inflation is under control, but we could have oil at $150 a barrel uh, in the middle of next year. He said that we, we could be in a situation where the yield on the uh, 10-year is well, well above 5%, as opposed to you know everybody being all upset about it just cracked above 4%. So, so the net effect is he's thinking the same thing about money availability. He doesn't believe that inflation has be, has been beaten, which is what we say. We don't believe it's going to, it has been beaten. Um, he believes that there is a serious global debt crisis, which is what we, again, Matt has been the lead on that, but we both we both believe in that situation. He 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 is not. He he didn't say we're going to have a recession next year. What he said was. You know, everybody thinks the consumer is going to keep spending and spending and spending. And as we said last week, he said, you know, the consumer is spending like a drunken sailor. He got this huge amount of money from the government and he just keeps spending it and he's borrowing against it. And he's saying that anybody who thinks that that's going to continue better stop thinking that, you know, that, that they've got to show more caution. And he used the word caution about the economy maybe four or five times. He just keeps saying it kept saying it repeatedly. Uh, and again, that's what we're saying. I mean, so the banking regulation thing, um, we wrote a report saying the we entitled it killing the banks because we thought that the regulation would dramatically harm the banks. He is far more explicit on that subject than we are, far more, you know, visceral because he's a bank and we're not a bank, uh, but the, and we're a beneficiary of killing the banks. So, so the, the 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 bottom line though is there is no difference in opinion there either. Um, I was just amazed as I sat and listened to him because he ticked off one after the other all of the things that we've been talking about, and he's on the same side as as we are in in every one of those issues. So I don't know it, 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 when someone who's a hell of a lot smarter than I am tells me that he agrees with the stuff we're saying, it makes you feel a lot better about it. Yeah, he really took the regulators to task on bank regulation and asked, do they want banks never to fail? I never thought that that was the goal, according to Diamond. He also had a very interesting stat. I'm quoting now from Jamie Diamond. I look at this major issue today about what we've gone from in America, and this is in your report, quoting from Jamie Diamond. Um, We've gone from, in America, in 1996, 7,300 public companies to something like 4,500 today. Um, it should have gone from 7,300 to 14,000 with the growth, the economy growth. Private equity, meanwhile, has gone from 1,000 companies to 10,000 companies. What's going on, he's asking. Well, it, again, it's the, it's the movement of technology and scale. In other words, as as companies, um, how do I say this? As, as technology continues to improve, it tends to get very expensive, and therefore only the biggest companies can afford to use the most advanced technology. Because you can, you know, they may have the money to go out and buy all the computers and put in all the systems, but if they don't have enough unit sales to go through the, the factory that they've created, I like to call it a factory, but it's a, a huge number of computers. If they don't have enough uh, transactions to go through that factory, they can't afford the factory. 
And therefore, you've got this consolidation. That's one thing. The other thing he's talking about is that when we had this massive increase in the growth of money supply, and it came in, and the money cost virtually nothing, that you know, private equity firms you know grew. Uh, they grabbed. They were able to get control of this money supply, and they're they're buying off all the companies that you know he thinks should have remained public. And of course, when they do that. We no longer have transparency on what those companies are doing because private companies don't have to report anything to anyone other than the IRS. At the end of the year, they got to pay their taxes. He's bemoaning the fact that you know private equity companies are getting greater and greater control of of these companies. Uh, you know, private companies. Number one and number two, he's bemoaning the fact that you know he doesn't want to see his competition go away. He wants to see all these small banks stay in business. He wants to beat them, but he wants he doesn't want them to go away. And I think that's what he's talking about there. He's talking about we're not allowing small business to grow. We're, we're keeping small business under a cloak because they're owned by private equity firms. And that's not from his perspective, I think. Now, I'm, 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 I'm assuming that's not good, right? Otherwise, he wouldn't have brought it up. I kind of want to channel my view of what I think Jamie is is actually thinking or saying, and maybe it's just my interpretation of how I see the world. But you know, when you distinguish successful countries from unsuccessful countries, one of the main things that differentiates them is abiding by the rule of law. The the government, you know, through elected people or maybe input uh, through dictate, you know, dictators or whoever, they set up the rules, and the rules, you know fit on these pages of paper and we all follow them and as long as we all follow the rules we all know the way the game's going to be played then the systems will work and one of the things that we set up was the fdic and the fdic is this federally deposit insurance company that basically charges all banks a small fee so that if some banks get into trouble the depositors have confidence that their deposits up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars will be protected and when silicon valley bank got bailed out contrary to the rules you know in in great excess of the amounts of money that would be needed to to pay the to, to bail out silicon valley bank according to the rules and they decided you know what we're going to save everyone not only are we going to save everyone we're going to save everyone at first republic we're going to save everyone at, at signature bank and all of a sudden the rules got changed and so when when dick was out there just a few minutes ago saying um asking rhetorically or maybe it was you john like are all bank is the design of the banking system that no bank will ever fail ever again? Well, if that's the 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 system we're now operating under, then yes, they have to change the rules dramatically because the insurance system isn't isn't rich enough to support no bank can ever fail. The only way they can make that work is to make sure that banks don't ever take risk. And if the banks never take risk, then banks will never fail. Therefore, the the FDIC system works. And I think what Jamie Dimon is actually pushing for is just a return to regular order. Like let banks fail. Let the FDIC system work. Let the the system, you know, churn out and get rid of the bad actors and reward the good actors. And Jamie Dimon, I think, views his bank as a well-run bank. I do have some issues that they are one of the strategically safe banks. It's too big to fail. I feel like we should get rid of that designation and let all banks be subject to failure. But I think what he's really bemoaning is the, the disregard for the rules. We've set up a system that has worked, and it works to make everyone richer it works to make businesses take risks and and get capital to take risks and and hire employees and and develop neighborhoods and develop communities and when you 
get rid of the guardrails and just say, sorry, instead of getting rid of the guardrails, you build giant guardrails so that no one ever takes risks anymore. You're choking off the lifeblood of the economy. And it's not good for society, and I don't think it's good for the banking system, that basically every bank is now too good to fail because the regulators now have the mindset that we can't let banks get to a point where they might fail, and it's causing these rules and regulations that are going to be crimping bank success in the future. Yeah, well, based upon what he said, I think he agrees 100% with what you just said, because he believes that banks should be allowed to fail. And he b does not believe that the system should be set up to bail out everyone everywhere all the time. Uh, but but where you know I diverge from what he's saying is that he believes that, um, that that the government doesn't know what it's doing at the moment, and I think the government does know what it's doing. What the government says is, you know, we can't support the system that is now in place, so we got to do something to change it. Because you know, and again, you just said this, but if we're supposed to guarantee everything for everyone, we don't have the money to do it. And therefore, you know, we're going to do something to make sure that the system changes so we don't have to do that. And what these banking rules say, and the reason why I wrote this thing entitled Killing the Banks, is because that's the theory behind what they're doing. They've got to allow these banks to fail. They've got to allow, you know, you know, people who put money in these banks at a million dollars, two million dollars, five million dollars, they've got to have risk in that money that money has got to be at risk to them losing every dime of it you know and and these regulations are moving in that direction these regulations which i think are necessary are moving in the direction of saying you got to have risk you got to take you know these loans out of the banks you got to put them in the private sector where we're not guaranteeing them you got to have risk so he agrees you agree i agree that you got to have risk in the system the difference between what you and I believe and what he believes is don't touch me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a big bag and <laughs> leave me alone. Okay. But uh, that, that's the only difference I think in our theory. I, I guess I'm trying to understand and learn a little here, Dick. So you could have an employer with a massive payroll, several hundred, several thousand. They could at any one point have multiple millions in their bank. And most of that is uninsured. Am I correct in that? Obviously, yeah, yeah. I am. Yeah, yeah. This, obviously, yeah. I mean, you know, what do you think? General Motors is going to put $250,000 in a bank. <laughs> they have to have money in banks all around the world because they sell cars all around the world. They buy products from companies all around the world to make their cars, right? So they need to have millions of dollars in these banks everywhere. Okay, now that's where Citigroup, Citigroup has its major advantage because they're all around the world and they allow General Motors to do that. But the point is, the American public should not guarantee General Motors deposits in all these banks in the United States. And that's where, what we've come to. And it's absolutely wrong. It just shouldn't happen because, number one, we can't do it. Number two, the taxpayer should not be put under this risk. They don't control General Motors. They can't tell General Motors what to do. So General Motors has got to be at risk of failure. Now, President Obama bailed them out when they failed, you know, in, in his period, you know, and everybody thinks that was a wonderful thing to happen, but maybe it wasn't a wonderful thing to happen because, you know, you know the bottom line is if, if, if you don't put risk into a company, that company is going to take tremendous, make tremendous mistakes in its operations 
And what we've done with the, the president saying every dime in banks in the United States is protected, the Secretary of the Treasury is saying every dime is protected. What we've done is we've taken risk out of the banking system, and that is a terrible error. What these new banking rules do is they put risk back in the banking system. And that is the right thing to do, even though, as they say, if you're the head of a bank, you may not agree with it. I think it's the right thing to do. I think your number, Dick, was in around 40% of deposits in U.S. banks were uninsured. That's a number I read recently, over 7 trillion out of maybe a total of 18 or 19 trillion. And we had a lot of uh, listeners pay attention to your analysis on the regulations um, on the last episode. And I just had a follow up on that um, because deposits are not sort of going away per se, even though they're scaling down because people are spending all that money that built up during COVID. It's more an accounting thing as such. The banks are going to create more long-term debt, get out of risky activities, but those actual deposits that customers have, they're not going away. It'll just be a whole different accounting methodology in, in a sense so that the regulators won't be on the hook for any massive losses that may happen. Yeah, right. In other words, you know, the, the, the money doesn't go away. It, it's just no longer deposits. If, if the bank says, I'll give you, you know, two and a half percent, if you give me your deposits on a, you know, five-year CD, or I'll give you five and a half percent, if you buy one of our five-year bonds, five-year term bonds, what are you going to do? You're going to take the 5% and buy the bond, right? So the net effect is once you do that, the deposit money is now become a loan to the bank through the purchase of debt, and the government doesn't have to worry about that. They're not guaranteeing that. They don't guarantee anybody who, put, who buys the debt of a bank. They don't guarantee anybody who put, makes an equity investment in a bank. Which, and Matt is right, you can't, that's what they did at Silicon Valley. They should never, ever have done that. They should have let that bank go down, all right? And they should have never, never let, you know, First Republic get bought by Jamie Dimon at such a cheap price, you know, or, or First uh, first Citizens buy, you know, uh, the Silicon Valley bank stuff at such a cheap price that they're now making a fortune. Do we, do you know, Dick, how, how much the uninsured depositors at Silicon Valley Bank would have lost had it failed and ignoring timing. But is it like 10 cents on the dollar, five cents on the dollar? Like it's not, it's not a hundred, it's not anywhere close to a hundred cents on the dollar. Correct. No, but it is closer to 80% on the dollar. I mean, if they would if, lose 80% or, I mean, the, the, the big, the big ticket depositors, they would have lost everything because they weren't insured and the government paid. No, them. but when, 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 in other banks that have been allowed to fail, the, the uninsured depositors don't lose everything. They just lose the the difference between the assets of the bank and and the deposits on the bank. And you know, I think my memory on Silicon Valley, I thought it was more like five or ten percent. You know, on 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 the uninsured deposits. Yeah, well, because because a the government guaranteed them, and b you know, First Citizens was willing to take them over, uh, even though they were uninsured deposits, and keep the deposits. Citizens was guaranteed on them. Yeah, but ignoring the guarantee. If you had just gone through regular order liquidation, the depositors would have gotten more than zero cents on the dollar back. Right. And I think it was closer to 80 or 90 cents. And so I guess I'm hypothesizing because the issue on that one was they failed basically late on a Friday and payroll was Monday. And a lot of companies like John had mentioned had made big deposits 
on that Friday in anticipation of processing payroll on Monday. Had they failed over the weekend, payroll wouldn't have gotten processed, and that would have led to lots of Silicon Valley companies unable to meet their payroll. And I just wonder if they could have come to a better solution where it was, you know, threading the needle saying, Hey, you're not going to, you're not going to get full bailout, but we'll, you know, we'll front you 80 or 90 cents on the dollar. That should help you get through your payroll. And we'll front you a little bit. And then we're going to let this bank fail like in normal course, but we're going to help process the payrolls and she addressed the actual issue that they're trying to solve rather than just give a handout to the Silicon Valley bank and, and, and their acquirer. Yeah, well, you see, the point is that uh, if the if the reason why they banks always fail on a Friday is because the government needs Saturday and Sunday to shift over, uh, you know, for the failure, and the bank can open up on Monday under you know the FDIC's control. Therefore, those payrolls would have been met by the FDIC, you know, because they now control and own the bank, right? But the point is that uh, you know they were fortunate enough to get. For citizens to step in and take it up, and they met, you know, they met whatever was required with the government saying, you know, don't worry. For citizens, if you lose any money, we'll cover you for the money you lose. But if you don't, you know, if you take this thing over and run it, and and you make money, then you keep the money you make. You know, that's the deal that was made. And for citizens, so you know, for citizens, stock took off like a rocket, you know, because of that, you know, because of that understanding. You can't run an effective capitalist system if you just don't are unwilling to let things go under they have yeah, to and you're picking and you're up. picking you're picking winners i mean you know this is the same with ubs and 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 credit suisse where the government comes in and is like hey we're going to force you to do something and then the acquirer i guess if you're in the lucky spot to be in that position says oh no please don't do that to me this is so expensive can you please give me this much type of guarantees or can you please help me on this and then you know Three months goes by and and they have record profits because they get to write up all the assets that they were that were you know forced upon them. Yeah, I mean that's that's what happens in the United States also. Basically, the acquirer marks down the value of the loans to let's say sixty cents on the dollar. Then they acquire the bank at the that those values. Then once they own those loans, they say, "Oh, wait a minute, these are good loans." And they mark them up from 60 cents back to 100 cents on the dollar. They show that as a profit, which is exactly what UBS did in the Credit Suisse situation. And then they say, well, look, you know, we did this. We bailed you out and we made this huge amount of money. And, you know, isn't that wonderful the system works? Isn't that wonderful that our government's picking winners and losers? Yeah, I, I share Jamie Dimon's frustration. <laughs> Dick, you have a new report out on the U.S. money supply, and its headline, The Federal Reserve Continues to Report False Money Numbers. Odeon Capital Group's new revised M3 definition corrects these errors. My question for you is, will the Fed ever change its methodology now that you have shown them to be producing these false numbers that I, I think are hurting and damaging the economy, frankly. Yeah, well, basically, um, the Fed does change. It, it keeps changing the definition of money. But, you know, before Matt jumps at me on this one, let me explain to you why they do it. <laughs> wow. Why they do it. <laughs> no. Start exercising. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but in other words, the question that you always ask when I talk about this is why, would, why do they do that? in the way they're doing it. 
In other words, why won't they count more than $100,000 as money? Why won't they count money in the money market funds as money? And, and the reasoning from the Fed side, if I understand it properly, is they think that money is transaction money. Transaction money is money which you can put your you can put your hand in your pocket, pull out a $50 bill, that's transaction money. You can go to the bank and in that demand deposit, you can pull out whatever amount you want, and that's transaction money. If you have a retail money market fund, you can pull it out and that's transaction money. If it's more than 100,000, it could be wrapped up in a CD and you can't pull it out immediately without paying a fee. If it's an institutional money market fund, it could be that you're gonna pay some type of uh, fee to pull your money out before the maturity date. So the government is saying, if you, if you don't have immediate access to that money to make a purchase exactly at the moment you wanna make that purchase, we don't wanna count it as money. My view is that the, the fallacy in that philosophy is that if you have $150,000 in the bank, you can take it out whenever you want. So you, can, you it, it has to be considered to be money. If you have money in an institutional money market fund and your general motors and you call up Fidelity and say, I want you know $10 million in 15 minutes, Fidelity will give it to them in 15 million. They're not going to step they're not going to you know make general motors pay some unusual fee to to take the money out so i believe that if the money exists in a place where you can get it it's money and and therefore it should be counted as money up until the rapid rise in interest rate it was a theoretical argument right you know who cared whether it was transaction money or savings money once interest rates went up very rapidly and money started moving out of the banks and into these other places, then you know you you run into a problem because basically you know the transaction money is still transaction money even if it's in a money market fund as opposed to you know a bank and even if it's one hundred and fifty three hundred thousand instead of two hundred and fifty thousand. So um, you know I the money supply number that that we've constructed at Odeon takes into account where money is, how fast you can get at it, and if it's if it's it's fungible in you know less than a day. In my view, it's fungible and it's money. Uh, the Fed's view is different. I don't think I'm going to jump on you for that. I, I I've understood it. I think where I where I jump is some of these times when you, when you hear the government change their definitions or change the metrics. You know, like when the CPI was changed to to switch to imputed rent versus actual housing payments or you know, something like this where they change M3 and M2, you know, it's just, is this manipulation? Is this, is this to try to present a rosier picture and kind of manipulate the public that things are better than, than they really are? Or is it logical the way you, you know, described it as well, over a hundred thousand dollars, presumably you're not about to spend that. And presumably it's in a CD. So does that really count as liquid cash? Uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah, well, you, 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 that's what the Fed is saying. It's not liquid cash and therefore we're not going to count it. And what I'm saying is that, um, under the old definition of M3, which was around, you know, 30, 40 years ago, it was considered money uh, because you could get it and you could spend it. It may take you a few days. Fed says that, well, that it's no good. It's not a transaction money. It's not M1. Yeah. Uh, and the other, thing, the other thing I would argue about it, though, is 
if I know I have a hundred thousand dollars in a CD and I'm down to my last like five thousand dollars to make my monthly payments, I'll feel better about spending that five thousand dollars just because I know I have that hundred thousand dollars of you know. I mean, you can get money out of CDs. You just have to, you know, as you said, it takes a few days. You have to take a little bit of a haircut, but but it does give you that psychological boost to spend the money you do have in your in your pocket. Yeah, no, but my my point is, I don't care whether it's transaction money or investment money. My my point is, if it's money, it's there, and it's available for investment. It's available for the economy to use, and it's available for stimulating, you know, growth or what have you. So my feeling is, forget this whole transaction money thing, and say how much money is available. To that, if if take these private equity funds, you know, they go in and buy these businesses, which we talked about a few moments ago. Basically, they are using money which the Fed does not believe is money to do that. So that's why I believe the broader definition is the appropriate definition and not the narrow definition of transaction or not transaction money. Yeah. And and presumably they use these kind of numbers and stats in trying to direct the future um trajectory of interest rate stick and where the economy is headed. The, the, the Fed needs these data points immediately yeah, I think they, yeah, the broad money they need to look at broad money if they want to understand it because you know there there is theoreticians at theoreticians at the uh you know st louis federal reserve which used to be the heart and soul of money calculation in the united states uh, because they had all these phds you know that worked there that did that and they say that uh, you know money is money based upon what the level of interest rates are. In other words, if interest rates go up, that we, the money supply is not money, um, and, and that's where I have a problem. Because if you can use the money to buy a machine, you know it's money. Uh, I, I don't care what what the interest rate is or where the location is; it's money. We're out of time. We could have talked for a lot longer. It was really interesting this episode as all episodes are, of course, needless to say. Um, we'll be back next week when we will talk about how the Fed responded and moved on interest rates this week and what it might mean for the economy and investors. And until then, until episode 88, take care. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.